Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and this week we are continuing our sermon series through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And as we've said numerous times now, the fundamental issue in Corinth was division in the church. And so Paul's letter is fundamentally an appeal for unity. And here in chapter 8, Paul turns his attention to a controversial issue for the Christians in Corinth, whether or not to eat food that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. Paul is going to take the next three chapters, actually, to speak some wisdom into that controversy. Now, we're going to have to do a bit of background work because we are far removed from the issue that Paul is addressing here. Some of us don't like the chemicals in a lot of meat. Some of us don't like the way some of the animals are treated. But I can, I can almost guarantee the meat down at Kroger has not been sacrificed as an act of worship to a pagan god or goddess. Okay, so we are far removed. But Paul does present a universal principle that we can faithfully apply today. And so here's our question for the day. What is freedom for? What is freedom for? As we'll see, this was a pressing question for the early church as they grappled with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. But this is a pressing question for us too, though for very different reasons. 2,000 years later, we are still having to learn what freedom is for. So, ancient Corinth was home to various pagan temples. At these temples, animals were sacrificed to pagan gods and goddesses, and then the meat from those animals was sold for people to eat. In fact, it appears as though something like restaurants or banquet halls were actually attached to some of these temples. And as we'll see over the next few chapters, there were at least three distinct issues under discussion. Number one, there was the practice of eating idle food in public at these pagan temple restaurants. Number two, there was the practice of purchasing idle food in the marketplace and then eating it privately. And number three, there was the practice of eating idle food at a meal hosted by a non-Christian. These practices were producing confusion and division amongst the Christians in Corinth. And, And from the way Paul addresses the issue, it appears as though the Christians who made a practice out of eating this idle food were seeking to justify their actions and discredit the concerns of so-called weaker Christians who were finding the practice to be a stumbling block. I think it's important to note that the contrast between strong Christians and weak Christians here in chapter 8 was, was likely not coined by Paul. In other words, Paul is probably not himself calling some Christians strong and other Christians weak. Those labels were more than likely devised by those who wanted to keep eating idle food. By labeling themselves strong and their opponents weak, they were discrediting their brothers and sisters who held different views. They were saying, listen, if, if they're stumbling over the fact that I like to eat in a pagan temple, it's just because their faith is weak. Their conscience is weak. If only they believed the truth, they wouldn't be so sensitive. So what was it that made this situation sensitive? Well, many within the church would have been regular worshipers in these pagan temples prior to their conversion to Christianity. 
So it was probably very difficult for them to distinguish and separate between the temple practices and the meat produced by those practices. Knowing firsthand what went on in those temples, it, it would have been disturbing to see Christian brothers and sisters eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. New converts would have been confused and they were at risk of falling back into sin and idolatry by following the example of the strong who made a practice of eating. So, how did the so-called strong Christians attempt to justify themselves to Paul? Verses one to three. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In essence, they say, Paul, come on, man. We, we all know what's going on here. We all know the truth. We all know that idols are nothing. We all know there's nothing wrong with that meat. It's just these weaker, less enlightened people who are wanting to prevent me from exercising my freedom in Christ. And Paul replies, here's the thing. The manner in which you are wielding your knowledge is unloving and divisive. You fancy yourself enlightened and strong and you've written off everyone else as ignorant and weak. And so listen, knowledge is great. And I agree with the truth of what you are saying, but your knowledge is tearing apart the church's unity. Love, on the other hand, builds up the church's unity. You see, Christian knowledge does not result. Christian knowledge never results in the so-called strong asserting their rights and liberties to the detriment of everyone else. Christian knowledge is not simply the accumulation of theological data and doctrine. It's not just about having the right answers. Christian knowledge is demonstrated by love. If we know as we ought to know, it will look like love. Jesus was a wise man, right? He knew a lot. He had good doctrine, he had a lot of theological data. He did a lot of teaching. He did a lot of correcting. But we know him best for the love he demonstrated. His death on a cross was the highest demonstration of love this world has ever seen. He never asserted his rights. He never asserted anything. He kept his mouth shut. And he laid down his life for you, for the weak, for us. Okay, so what was the knowledge that these people possessed? Verses four to six. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So-called strong 
wanted to continue eating food sacrificed to, to idols. And so they appealed to the fact that pagan gods and goddesses don't actually exist. Idols are nothing. There's only one true God. And so what does it matter where this meat comes from? And Paul agrees. There is only one true God. Idols are nothing, which means that the meat is fine. Now, later on in chapter 10, Paul is going to nuance that, that a bit. He's going to address the issue from another angle. But for right now, he concedes that idols are non-existent and powerless. He concedes this, but then he counters with something else. The so-called strong Christians in Corinth were right about God's nature. He is the only true God. But they were forgetting God's character. He cares for the weak. He sacrifices for the weak. Verses seven to 10. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so Paul envisions a scenario where a brother or sister who, who could not disassociate idol food from idol worship encounters another Christian partaking of that food, sits down to join him, and stumbles back into sin and idolatry. A modern example might be a person who struggles to distinguish, to disassociate drinking from drunkenness. One of Aesop's fables illustrates this well. It's called The Frog and the Mouse. A mouse who always lived on the land by an unlucky chance formed an intimate acquaintance with a frog who lived for the most part in the water. The frog, one day intent on mischief, bound the foot of the mouse tightly to his own. Thus joined together, the frog first of all led his friend the mouse to the meadow, where mice were accustomed to find their food. After this, he gradually led the mouse towards the pool in which he lived, until reaching the very brink, he suddenly jumped in, dragging the mouse with him. The frog enjoyed the water amazingly, and swam croaking about as if he had done a good deed. The unhappy mouse was soon suffocated by the water and his dead body floated about on the surface, tied to the foot of the frog. A hawk observed it, and pouncing upon it with his talons, carried it aloft. The frog, being still fastened to the leg of the mouse, was also carried off a prisoner and was eaten by the hawk. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> like, like the frog, the so-called strong Christians in Corinth took pride in their ability to croak about in dangerous environments. But their escapades came at a cost. Like the frog and the mouse, the Christians in Corinth were tethered together. They were bound to one another. They were united. And so the frog should have taken care not to harm the mouse. 
Here in a bit, we'll discuss the implications of this on an individual level within the church, but I want to show how American society as a whole is functioning, or rather dysfunctioning, like the frog and the mouse. Americans like freedom, right? Right? Yeah. We like it very much. But again, I, I think we need to learn what our freedom is for. I would submit that a false view of freedom has taken root in our society, and this false view of freedom is benefiting the strong and hurting the weak. The popular understanding of freedom today is the freedom to be myself, whatever I decide that means. That, that's a freedom from limits, a freedom from judgment, a freedom from morality, a freedom from anything that keeps me from being my truest self. It's the freedom to choose whatever I desire and to define myself however I desire. So we want freedom from everything. Freedom from everything. We must not entertain the idea that our freedom might be for something. Here's the problem. The so-called strong in our society are able to croak about in these dangerous waters. The wealthy and educated are able to exercise their liberties without many consequences. For example, our society encourages sleeping around. The sexual practices of the rich and poor are remarkably similar. And yet, a disproportionate number of Americans with sexually transmitted infections are poor. And poor women are five times more likely to have an unplanned pregnancy. Maybe you've heard of the opioid crisis. Well, that crisis is almost exclusively limited to poor communities. Wealthy people are far more able to take drugs recreationally. For one, they aren't dipping into their grocery money to, to buy the drugs. But they're also better able to quit when they choose. Studies show that most of the people who quit using drugs are educated and affluent. You see, the, the so-called strong exercise their freedom from moral norms, and the so-called weak are met with a stumbling block. The cultural elites are setting the norm for our society, and everyone else is following to their destruction. The rich frog is, is dragging the poor mouse deeper and deeper into the abyss. The frog can thrive there, but the mouse is suffocating and the hawk is overhead. In a healthy society, however, the strong serve the weak. This means that our concept of freedom must leave room for discipline and self-denial and the voluntary renunciation of our rights when necessary. Christian love and obedience often means giving up our freedoms. Just in time for the 4th of July, right? That's because Christian freedom is not only freedom from, it's freedom for. Christian freedom is not only freedom from slavery in Egypt, it's freedom for serving God in the promised land. Loving God and loving neighbor, that is what freedom is for. 
Let's read verses 11 to 13. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So the question is not, what am I permitted to do? The question is, what is best for my brother? And, and framed this way, the question applies to all sorts of things. How far can I go with my girlfriend? Wrong question. What is best for your girlfriend? If marijuana is legalized, can I smoke it? Wrong question. Would it cause a brother to stumble? And many other questions. There are probably other questions to be asking on that one. Which curse words can I say? Wrong question. Do your words build up and edify others? How much money should I spend on myself? Wrong question. Do I serve the weak and the poor with my finances? Let me put it this way. In chapter 8, Jesus Christ identifies with the mistaken brother, not the brother with the correct doctrine. The so-called strong had correct doctrine, idols are nothing. And yet, Jesus identifies with the weak. Jesus identifies with the weak because our corporate unity is more important than our individual liberties. Now, Paul is not saying that we are required to make everybody happy all the time. He's not saying that we are never permitted to offend anyone. In other words, we are, we are not called to submit to every person's petty legalisms. For instance, there are some people who fancy themselves strong Christians who disapprove of a glass of wine with dinner. We are not called to oblige such people. We are called to oblige the brother or sister who may stumble into sin because of the glass of wine we have with dinner. There's a big difference. And so the call is to enjoy God's good gifts, but never to enjoy them to the detriment of others. The call is to use wisdom and discretion and prudence and moderation. The call is to love your brothers and sisters, always. It's also interesting to see what Paul does not say about meat sacrifice to idols. The pagan temples were making lots of money from the sale of this meat. And if Paul were to address the issue like many modern American Christians, he might instruct the Corinthians to boycott the pagan temples so as to put the temples out of business. Now, it's an argument from silence, admittedly, but it's striking to me that Paul does not advocate boycotting as a means of effecting social change. Paul does not accuse the Christians in Corinth of funding idolatry. He doesn't make that leap. And so, so if you decide to stop buying Starbucks coffee, or to stop banking at Wells Fargo, or to stop reading Harry Potter, by all means, go for it. But I, 
I don't think Paul's example here will allow you to turn around and say to your brother or sister, how dare you drink Starbucks coffee? How dare you bank at Wells Fargo? How dare you read Harry Potter to your children? The Bible never calls Christians to suppress culture. It calls us to make culture, and it calls us to redeem culture. Look back at verses 11 and 12. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. We are the body of Christ. And the foot must refrain from harming the hand. And the ear must refrain from harming the eye. The frog must remember that the mouse is not a strong swimmer. We must never lure a brother or sister into an exercise of liberty that requires more strength than they currently possess. To do so is to sin against your Savior. Christians have freedom because our stronger brother was willing to lay aside his rights for us. We were weak. Jesus laid aside his liberty for our sake. He didn't live a perfect life so that he could hold it over on you. He lived a perfect life so that his life could be a perfect sacrifice. He died for you. He didn't have to. He laid aside his liberty for your sake, and that's what it means that's what it means to follow him within the context of Christian community, laying aside your liberties for the sake of others. Our privileges and freedoms are not just individualistic. They are corporate. As Paul says in verse 3, to love God and be known by him is what counts. And when we love God, we will love others like God has loved us we will lay down our rights and privileges for others. It doesn't matter what you know about idle meat or alcohol or whatever it is. It matters that you know how to love. So by all means, we should grow in knowledge. But we shouldn't imagine that we know anything, according to Paul. We should become the type of people who might be described as strong, but we should always be willing to lay aside our liberties for others because love is what counts most. In a few weeks, we'll come to chapter 13, the love chapter. I want us to read that in light of chapter 8. In fact, everything Paul says in the first 12 chapters is building to chapter 13. Love is what counts most. Freedom is for love. The freest being, the freest being in all the universe, God, is love. He is love. He uses his freedom for love. And consider this. How did Jesus achieve victory over the powers of evil in this world? Was it, was it through his worldly wisdom? Was it through his superior knowledge? Was it through a demonstration of his kingly power? 
In a sense, yes. But Jesus achieved victory over the powers of evil in this world by willingly setting aside his power, authority, privilege, and status. Thus, when we willingly give up our rights and liberties, we are not merely being generous to one another. We are actually striking a blow against the powers of evil in this world. We are presenting a direct challenge to the powers of evil in this world. Taking up your cross. That means being willing to sacrifice your power, authority, privilege, and status. Taking up your cross as Jesus showed us, as he demonstrated, taking up your cross is how victory is achieved in the kingdom of God. Thus, on that day, when every Christian brother and sister is willing to live this way, the pagan temples of our day will go out of business. Loving God, loving neighbor, that's what freedom is for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your people. We thank you for the privilege of being called into your kingdom. Uh, it's a privilege and an honor. It's also a responsibility, God. And so I pray that beginning with us, beginning with this congregation, um, the world would be able to look, to, to peer into the church community and see a society that functions well. Um, a society that gives the rest of the world a taste of what life in your kingdom is like and what it will be like when you return. So give us humility. Give us faith to be willing to, to set aside our rights and privileges and status uh, for the sake of our brothers and sisters who need it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh.